I pull up to the impact. There's debris everywhere. There's a lot of smoke, a lot of gases, a lot of just debris in the air. And I go into the building and I'm expecting to see at least one, if not two or three people just hemorrhaging blood. Hey gang, John Korea is so proud to be a brand ambassador for Heckler & Coke Pistols. They're, they're not a sponsor per se, but they have helped us out so much. The whole team, we just drag our HKs around the country to training, to the ASP conference, and we just know that no matter how poorly we treat them, they're going to go bang whenever we need them to. They're incredibly reliable, and they're a joy to shoot. And paddle magazine release. Please visit them at hk-usa.com, hk-usa.com, and tell them the ASP podcast sent you. Alrighty, gang. Welcome back to the Active Self-Protection Podcast. I am yet again your host, Mike Wolliver, and I am your favorite former Fed. With us this week, another new friend of mine. His name is Joshua. Joshua is married with one small baby. Um, speaking of small babies, we have one here as well. My grandbaby's here. We got puppies. He's got a baby. Think of this like a Zoom call. You might hear some stuff in the background. Try to work through it. It's not church. There's no cry room. So uh, we do we do our best. Uh, Joshua, how are you, sir? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Did I mention he's in Nebraska, folks? Omaha, Nebraska. Um, you and Neil Widener would have some stuff to talk about. He has, He's in South Dakota, and he has thoughts uh, about Nebraska, and none of them are good. So I'll let you guys hash that out. <laughs> hash that out. I, who knew that Midwesterners are so nice, but apparently there's a rivalry between some, some of these states where they don't get along. So yeah. not, like, not like Ohio, Michigan, but still. Yeah, well, I'm a Hoosier at heart, so I moved here four years ago. I'm a foreigner. Okay, so from Indiana originally. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, we were just out there for the NRA meeting uh, a couple months yeah. ago. I, I enjoyed it. Indianapolis is a really nice, nice town. Yeah. Um, so if I didn't mention it, he is in Nebraska. He owns his own cleaning business. Um, we can talk about that if it gets if, if it comes up during the course of the story. And he was coaching a homeschool football team. So get your homeschool jokes in now. Um, oh yeah, yeah. About not being socialized properly. Hey, there's a football team. I didn't even know there's a homeschool football team until you wrote to me. So that's exciting news. Yeah. Uh, so talk to us about you uh, personally growing up, your self-defense journey. Did you, mm -hmm. uh, obviously I, I read your email, so you were prepared for, you know, not for anything, but for a lot of things, more than the average person. So you had given mm -hmm. your self-defense and security some thought. So kind of walk us through what got you to that point. Did you grow up in a household where that was a thing or did you come across this as an adult on your own? Yeah. So growing up, I was not raised around guns really at all. Um, there were a handful of times where I'd go out to Maryland to visit my grandparents and I'd go skeet shooting with my grandpa, who was a pastor, and then one of his close friends, who's uh, almost like an uncle figure for me. But apart from those skeet shooting trips, really, there was that. And then, the, like I mentioned in the email, but the, the wannabe gun case that was more the glass armoire with some shotguns inside that my best friends had growing up in their living room. So growing up, uh, guns weren't taboo or like perceived as a bad thing or evil, but just personally didn't have a lot of experience with them. And then that really changed uh, about two years ago when I got engaged and then married. Uh, I actually picked up my first firearm the morning of the wedding. I was really excited to get my hands on it. So uh, from there, it really was the mindset shift of I'm getting married, I'm starting a family, and being the man of the household, I'm now responsible for the protection and safety of my wife and our kids in the future. Um, God's blessed us with a little baby daughter. She's nine months. Um, and I really had, as I mentioned, a real mind, mindset shift mm -hmm. from there. So um, I want to make sure that if I'm doing this, I'm going to do it properly. So thankfully, there is a, a range here in town that actually trains a lot of LEOs, 
um, a lot of U.S. Marshals, um, SWAT teams. And so it actually opened up to civilian training as well. So when I went there, I got really some top-level training, and then they referenced you guys. They referenced the notion of just continuing to train, continuing to dry fire at home. Um, this was in the height of COVID, so obviously rounds were and ammunition were uh, incredibly expensive. Mm. So came across you guys, went full with the palm, palm pepper spray, got that. Um, I carry appendix with a T-Rex arms holster. I love the Botkin brothers and the way that they're going about doing their business with a very Christian, uh, even reformed perspective on gun culture and our rights. So I've just been blessed to come across a lot of great um, training, a lot of great, uh, I hate the word influencers, but <laughs> but influencers, if you will, with you guys, the Botkin brothers over at T-Rex Arms, and even locally here with uh, 88 Tactical and the training that they offer. So uh, I mentioned it, I drive for a ton. Uh, I try to go shooting. I take a lot of guys from church out to go shooting for their first time to try to demystify guns to them. Great. Uh, knowing that a lot of these guys are going to have their own families coming up. So a little bit long-winded, but no, that's hopefully okay. that answers that. That's okay. There's no time limit on this show, except I have another interview in an hour and a half. So there is kind of a time limit. But um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me. So a couple things about that. One, you know you're at a good training academy, a good training site when they recommend active self-protection. That's just, there's no way there's anything wrong with that place. If they recommend us, they know what they're talking about. They know the goods. Another thing is something you said that um, I, I know in the back of my mind, I can hear my CEO, Stephanie Widener, push back on. Now, I love the idea that you are the protector of your family, but we encourage uh, both halves of the marriage wherever possible to you know to get mm-hmm. that training. So just something to think about for the for the viewers and the listeners. Uh, I'm a big fan of because I can't always be there, you know. And if my wife or my daughter has to handle business, I want to make sure they can. So just a plug for that. Um, mm-hmm. So the incident at hand is not um, not a shooting or a stabbing or even an assault. Uh, it sounds like we what we had was a car accident. So I've never I never in my wildest dreams thought I would start. Uh, an interview with, so there you were coaching homeschool football practice. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that, and all of a sudden. I don't think that sentence has ever been spoken before. Uh, no. So yeah, so there there you are. You're, you're around a bunch of uh, a bunch of young people uh, coaching mm-hmm. football, and it's like any other day. Kind of walk us through what happened, what you observed, and how you responded. Yeah, so I like mental pictures, so I'm going to paint a good one if I if I can try. So imagine you've got kind of a, a street that forms an elbow. Uh, it's coming from the left, going towards the right, and it shoots up towards the north. And on the elbow, it's more of a bend than it is a crisp 90-degree angle. But on that elbow of the road is a parking lot, and on the north side of that parking lot is a pro shop slash office for a local um, golf course here in Omaha. And then on the opposite side is a lot of green open space, attached to an elementary school that has some fields that we practice at. So again, a parking lot at the elbow of a road that bends. And then on the north side is the pro shop for the golf course. And we're on the south side practicing homeschool football. So it's the sort of practice I'm gathering my kiddos up. We had about 18 to 20 at practice that day. And I am facing actually the parking lot towards the um, pro shop. And so as we're getting ready to start a pre-practice prayer, um, I hear a, a squeal of tires coming from the left side, which is on a uh, on a hill. So it's coming down towards us. And I look over and there's a uh, red Chevy coming down that's really wobbling on the road and going at a pretty good clip. 
Uh, we're in a residential area, so it's a neighborhood. So obviously, uh, speed limit's about 25 or 20 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. um, but this guy comes barreling in, clips the uh, curbside closest to us, and enters that parking lot, and then careens hard left to his north and um, just barrels into this pro shop. I mean, the entirety of his truck, say for maybe the last two foot or two feet rather of his of his pickup is completely encased in the building at this point. <laughs> um, I want to ask real quick at this moment, um, mm -hmm. how long after the parade attack where someone drove into a, a bunch of people, how, how long after mm -hmm. that was this? And did that occur to you? Did it look like this car was out of control? Like the driver was disabled or did it look like it was intentional at, at, in that moment? Mm -hmm. So this happened close to a month and a half, two months ago. I'm not completely sure when the walk is it Waukesha. Waukesha I'm not yeah, sure how the like pronunciation that. is. Yeah, I'm not sure when that parade attack had happened, but there were three thoughts in my mind. I mentioned this in the email, and that was one of them. Uh, first, my thought was, is this guy drunk? Um, two, is he high? Um, those, that, that was kind of my first thought. But the second thought was, there's going to be some some pretty bad injuries, most likely. Mm -hmm. uh, there were people inside this pro shop when. Uh, the truck hit, and th this isn't a large building. I mean, this looks like maybe a large public restroom. Like a Dairy, you will. Dairy like, Queen size? Old school Dairy Queen? Yeah. yeah. Dairy Queen, small, if not smaller. Um, and that third thought was, um, could this be violent? And my mind did immediately go to that Waukesha parade attack. Um, I saw the tent, the windows were not tinted. I was able to see the driver before he, he went into the building. And he seemed to be not like uh, aggressive or attacking, but just he looked like he was out of control. Um, but just the nature of how he was driving did give alarm. And in the moment, I mean, it's a half of a second as you're seeing this guy blow through a entire building going about 40 miles per hour. Yeah. So those are three thoughts. One, um, he's likely high or drunk, which turned out it wasn't the case as we'll get to, but two, th there's going to be some most likely some pretty bad, injuries and casualties and then three um was, was this violent and is there going to be a risk after he gets out yeah like is he going to get out with vehicle? a rifle and start shooting people exactly and you had the guy who was at lubby's cafe if i'm pronouncing it right yeah lubby's cafe uh, yeah, Lo lubby's yep. and and that guy i mean drives through the restaurants and then proceeds to open fire and kill dozens of people so yeah i think the important thing here is not you know not to <laughs> excuse me today what's wrong with me uh, not to confuse that mindset with paranoia. It's good to have mm -hmm. thought through things. Um, so it's better for you to think, okay, the other thing, by the way, is medical emergency. He could be diabetic um, or he'd be having a heart attack. There's a million different reasons why this could be happening. Um, I think the safe, the safest thing is, as you did, is not to assume any one of those things is necessarily the case, but to keep an mm -hmm. open mind that any one of those might be. Could be the guy's having a heart attack. He needs an AED. It uh, could be he's he's overdosing on something and you know needs narcan mm -hmm. it could be that he's here to kill people it could be that he's just drunk um so the idea that you have those things in mind is good and yeah I've, I've seen i was there once when a vehicle hit a building and it's and it's quite a noise it's unlike anything else uh and it's startling so after this all happens the dust is now billowing what do you what's the first thing you do yeah so the moment that that truck uh impacts the building i immediately yell to one of the kids that I go to church with who's on the team and we have a med kit with us at all times. I screamed at him and grabbed the med kit and run towards, um, the accident. And then I sprint immediately upon impact 
towards the accident. And thankfully my car was on the way. So looking back, I felt pretty good about my first initial reaction, but after that, I don't feel as good about whatever or what all happened. So I have let, to run to my stop car because let's stop you there for one second. Yeah. Um, look, most people today's society would, would probably sit out, sit around and, and open their phone and start video recording this whole thing and not do anything to help. Mm-hmm. So don't beat yourself up too bad. The fact is you were more prepared than the average person. So moving yeah. on, sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. So like I mentioned earlier, we're on, I would assume the property of an elementary school, we're about 200 yards away, but it's same that it's the same grassy field that, that elementary school shares. Most of these kids, they got parents who are pretty pro gun, but it just takes the one kid who's got a mom who really, that would set her off to get yeah. some, some issues going on that I wouldn't want. So I don't carry during practice for that reason. So I had to run to my vehicle, which was thankfully on the way, um, to the accident. So the accident's about 50 yards away from where, from where I originally was standing and my car is about 20 yards into that. So I go to my car and my door is locked, obviously. And I pat my pocket to realize I don't have my keys on me. They're right. in my duffel bag back 20 yards. So this is where my heart kind of sank because um, seconds are ticking by. And so I have to run back to my duffel bag, grab my keys, run back to my car, get into um, the car to access my firearm. And thankfully with my setup, um, I do the sidecar that T-Rex offers with their holster. So I just had recently switched out my extra mag um, for a tourniquet, being that SIG has released um, the 17 round mag for the SIG 365s. Mm-hmm. So I carry the 17 round mag of one of the chambers. So I got 18 rounds um, and I carry that, um, that tourniquet, the cat tourniquet with me and the little sidecar attachment to that holster. Um, so I put on my holster and I immediately grab out my tourniquet. And by the time I'm able to get to the impact site, it's already been about 45 seconds to a minute um, after the accident. Whereas if I had had my keys on me, or even better, if I'd had my tools on me, I could have been there within 12 or 15 seconds. Um, so I don't know if you want to interject or if you want me to keep going. No, that's fine. Yeah, we, we beat this to death, especially on the badge cams on the main channel that that's for law enforcement. But still, it, it, it is always, I love the fact that you traded out your extra bag for a tourniquet because one of the things John likes to say is if you're carrying an extra mag and no med kit, you're wrong. Um, mm-hmm. The idea being that it's only so much space on you as a civilian. You're not wearing a duty belt, hopefully. Um, so yeah, I think the tourniquet's a better use of of that extra little bit of space, real estate on your belt or wherever you keep it. Uh, and yeah, yeah got to have it on you. Um, you know, there's always, there's always times when you're not going to have the stuff right at your, you know, at your disposal. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if you were at the swimming pool and this happened, you wouldn't be wearing a med kit, you know, you'd be, you'd be in your, uh, in your swim trunks, uh, and no shirt. So, uh, the fact yeah. that you had it nearby is great, but it does illustrate the point. Having it on you saves time in an emergency. Had the guy been bleeding out badly from his femoral artery, those seconds may have meant the difference. So it's just a good, mm-hmm. a good teaching point. So moving on. Yeah. So I usually carry like a full on Carhartt satchel that had chest seals, two tourniquets, X, Y, and Z in it. But I, for three months had the habit of wearing that thing and then just got kind of, uh, maybe not annoying, but just, you don't see a lot of guys wearing satchels. <laughs> yeah. So I started not wearing that. And then it hit me about three months after I stopped wearing it that I, I need to have some form of, of, uh, medical supplies on my person. So that's when I went to the tourniquet with the sidecar, but Anyways, so I pull up or I arrive or walk up, run up to the uh, to the impact 
and um, there's debris everywhere. There's a lot of smoke, a lot of gases, a lot of just debris in the air. And I go into the building and I'm expecting to see at least one, if not two or three people just yeah. hemorrhaging blood smushed. at this point. Yes, smushed. Um, and so I open the door and I can barely see in there. Uh, very small space, uh, probably like a 12 by 18 foot room is pretty much what it was. Um, and the truck is completely uh, through it. And so I look in the truck, I don't see a driver. I look under the truck, I don't see anybody underneath it. Um, it had blasted through a bathroom. And so if anyone was in that bathroom, they would have been almost assuredly deceased. Wow. But thankfully, no one was in that bathroom. Um, there were actually two or three people that were inside the building when the truck uh, had impacted. And thankfully, none of them had actually gotten hit. So I look around and, and I don't see any bodies. I don't see anybody uh, injured or um, in need of help. So I walk back outside and that's when um, I go looking for the driver. And at this point, all 20 of those players that were on my on the practice field with me are now circling up around this kind of accident. Um, so I find the driver and there's also four or five other golfers from the golf uh, first one or two holes who were close enough that they've now also kind of walked up. So we got a small crowd at this point mm-hmm. um, around the, the accident. And I find the driver and I get to talking with him. I asked him what happened. He says that his brakes went out. Um, I asked him if he was okay. He got a little, I don't want to say belligerent. I just think that the, the moment was a little frustrating for him. He mentioned that he was ex-military. He's fine. And he didn't say like, get off me, but he was kind of like, you know, leave, leave me alone <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. He's having a bad day for sure. Yeah. So I give him some space while I keep him in my peripheral vision. Um, I don't smell weed on him. I don't smell alcohol or anything that I would know uh, scent wise. Um, and at that point, what I am smelling scent wise is natural gas. Oh boy. Um, so I'm sure that when he pummeled through the building, he triggered or tripped or blasted through a couple gas lines so this is when I start telling the 20 of my players that they need to get back to the practice field mm-hmm. um, in the off chance that something does ignite. Um, so I tell all my guys to get back to the practice field and I'll get there when I can. Just throw the football around, talk about what you saw, whatever you have to do, but you need to get get away uh, from here. So um, at that point, the cops have been called by uh, other golfers who were there. Um, and I'm more just lingering around the driver to make sure that nothing goes south or if he's okay uh he might have internal bleeding that he doesn't even realize um still got my tourniquet in hand and now i'm just more like observing and taking in what's going on so the natural gas ended up being a thing or was it you were definitely smelling there was definitely a leak yeah when the cops arrived and the paramedics arrived they smelled it too um so i'm not sure if the firefighters found the the valve and shut it off there was never like a big cry to like, all right, no one can be within 20 yards, 50 yards of the place. So I guess it wasn't that bad of a, of a leak, right. but yeah, they, they uh, identified it when they pulled up. Yeah. But if you're not an expert, I mean, best thing to do is get as many people away from there as possible. I think you did the right thing. Was, yeah. there, was there another adult or another coach with the team or was it just you? Uh, it was just me at that point. The assistant coach, um, he was running a little bit late. I own a cleaning company. He owns a remodeling company. And he had had a long day at work, so he was running about 10 to 15 minutes late. But his boys were at the practice, um, so that coach missed the the show, if you will. Missed the excitement? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think um, uh, 
the number one lesson here for me isn't, um, you know, where is your medical equipment? I think we kind of beat that one to death. Let's talk about cardio. Mm-hmm. You had to run, how many yards altogether did you have to sprint to do what you did running back and forth? I mean, if, you had, <laughs> if you had to estimate, I'm serious. If you had to estimate. Uh, probably a hundred yards. Yeah. And you were running at a, at a sprint, I assume, to get to your medical kit and to get yeah. to these people. Yeah. So a hundred yards, you know, if you're an old fat guy like me, that's a big deal. Um, so, you know, having, having your physical conditioning where it needs to be is a big part of self-defense. It's a big part of being a self-defender and a protector. Uh, if you can't get to the thing or if you're, by the time you get to the thing, you're so smoked that you can't do anything, then that's not, not a lot of use. So if you could do something differently, you, you, you talked about some bullet points about lessons when you sent me the email. What's the number one yeah, thing? You, that email. Yeah. What's the number one thing you would have done differently if you could go back and do it over again? Um, number one thing was to have it on my person. Um, so if that had the tools, that is a uh, firearm and tourniquet. Um, uh, you know, I, I know it was an elementary school. Um, this is one of the talking points I had with the guys at the range that I trained at. The guy that I trained with was 20 years of SWAT at Denver or in the Denver area. That was one of my questions when I finished with him was, Hey, like when you see a, a restaurant or a place of business that has a sign that says no firearms allowed, do you follow that? Or do you kind of just say, if they can't see it. I'm going to go ahead and, and keep it on me. Um, his point was, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you what I do. And I, I don't follow that. Yeah, um, it's they're, they're talking a to him, silly, by the way, like the criminal who's about to rob the place because, Oh, I can't rob this place. It's got a sign. Yep. There's a sign. Did you exactly. see the sign? Yeah. So I got into the habit in light of that of really carrying at all times, unless it's a federal building or unless they have metal detectors, or in this case, if it's an elementary school. Um, I remember shortly after Uvalde had happened, my nieces had a dance recital at a local theater here, and I was planning on carrying until I walked up and they had metal detectors screening people. So I had to do a little UE and run back to the car. But uh, number one thing would just be having my tools on my person at all times and just saying, hey, I'd rather have it and not need it. Not need it. Then again, this is that scenario where, thank God, it wasn't a Waukesha part two. Or I, got, I even mentioned the email like, what if it had been gunshots behind me at the elementary school? Mm-hmm. And I have to run back to the, the vehicle to get my gun. And I mentioned that I think it was John, or maybe, maybe it was you had mentioned in one of the YouTube videos that roughly every six to 10 seconds, there's going to be a death during a mass shooting event. Mm-hmm. And so if it turns out that it's not uh, a truck pummeling into a, a pro shop at a golf course, but it's gunshots 200 yards behind me at elementary school, those extra 40 to 45 seconds that it cost me not having my tools on me could have been several more children having, having passed. And people might scoff at that and think, Oh, you're being paranoid. You're being, you might be overthinking it. But I view this incident as a as a mulligan, if you will. I, I wasn't prepared as I want to be. But I, I'm 25. I've already had to pull over to stop a guy jumping off of an overpass. I've had this incident. Um, I've had a guy who got who was riding a bicycle in town. He got hit by an Amazon van, and he's bleeding from his from his head. Um, and so I had to pull out my hemostatic gauze for him. But thankfully, the paramedics got there about three seconds after I did. So at this point, it's once every year for me that I'm experiencing or being around a pretty serious medical event for somebody. 
Right. And who's to say that in the future it's not going to be gunshots? So. Yeah, for sure. I think um, it's a great it's a great mindset to have to have the medical stuff on you and have a little bit of training to know how to use it. Um, going back for a moment to that the school dance, you said it was a school dance or something like that at at a whatever facility, and they had metal detectors out front. Did they mm-hmm. also have heavily armed police officers there with rifles in full battle rattle, or do they just have metal mm-hmm. detectors? So they had officers, but they weren't in battle rattle. They had several patrolling the area, which oh, I was thankful good. for. So, and at that point, I was considering going into law enforcement. So I was picking their brain on the local de- departments, if they would recommend them or not. It ended up being that one of the guys that we go to church with, he's an officer. He actually been shot the year before three times at point blank distance. And somehow the guy grazed them two out of those three shots. But anyways, um, he just mentioned that with law enforcement, he didn't want to dissuade me, but he wanted to help me understand that it is going to be a massive time commitment. And it's going to completely shape and kind of, he didn't say tyrannize, but your freedom is going to be like freedom of time is going to be very much lacking. And with my priorities, with the kind of husband and father that I want to be and the kind of church member I wanted to be, that kind of pulled me out of, out of going towards the law enforcement route. But anyways, to get to your question, no full battle rattle at the niece's dance recital at the theater. Well, I'm just glad, but, um, I'm just glad they had officers. My, my point was going to be, if they didn't have anyone was, so who's going to protect you if you can't bring your gun in? There's just a bunch of people out front with, with magnetometer wands. Um, but at least yeah. they had cops there, so I'll give them credit for that at least. Uh, not that they're necessarily going to stop the thing from happening. but um, Yeah. Uh, the security guy at front, he had some eagle eyes. He picked out my, my pepper spray in my pocket and my pocket knife, so I had to go in there naked, it felt like. Yeah, it's not a great feeling. Um, so, yeah, and, and as far as the... Um, the sign thing. I want to talk about that again real quick. Uh, you know, I, it's between you and your God, like anything else self-defense related, you need to have had a conversation mm-hmm. with yourself about your firearm and your willingness to use it and your ability to use it effectively. But those signs, um, uh, there's a line from one of my favorite Westerns, my favorite Western, Unforgiven, where there's a, an assassin has come into the town of Big Whiskey and he's saying, uh, uh, I'll take that lap. They're taking his guns away from him. So I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that mm-hmm. 32, Bob. And he says, uh, well, it shouldn't be a problem, most especially if you don't see it, you know? Um, so if you're concealing well, I won't tell you what to do, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't voluntarily disarm because someone had a silly sign in the mm-hmm. front of their business. That's just my two cents. That is our yeah. time. Joshua, I can't thank you enough for writing in. As always, um, if it weren't for people like you, there'd be no show. Uh, so thank you so much for starting your self-defense journey, for being um, a watcher, a viewer of active self-protection, for writing in. Uh, was there anything you wanted to add before I let you go? It was a red Chevy. So for all you truck guys out there, <laughs> we're not doing Ford versus Chevy on this show. I'll tell you, or, or Dodge or anyone else for that matter. Yeah. Uh, I drive a Subaru Outback. So I don't have any skin in the game. That was, that was a brave statement for you to make, sir. A Subaru Outback. Uh, that is, that's something it means you got a family or it means something yeah. else. We don't talk about it here on the show. Yeah. All right, Joshua. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, sir. Well, all right, gang. Welcome back to the Gutowski Files, starring Stephen Gutowski. He is the founder of TheReload.com and the host of my second favorite podcast, the Weekly Reload Podcast, which is available on all your finer podcast outlets and, of course, on YouTube. Uh, go over to TheReload.com when you have a moment and consider getting a membership. Stephen relies on your membership dues to fund his important work, and it is, in fact, very important work. So this week, uh, 
we are discussing a really important case, I think. This is a Supreme Court case that Stephen brought to my attention, uh, and it's pretty nuanced. There's a lot going on here, so I'm just going to let him take uh, take over the reins here and explain to you kind of what's going on. The The article is entitled, Supreme Court Agrees to Take Up New Gun Case by Stephen Gutowski. Stephen, first of all, how are you? I'm doing good. You know, that podcast you mentioned is actually my first favorite uh, podcast. Interesting. What's your yeah. second favorite? And don't say Joe Rogan. Uh, the active self-protection podcast, I think is pretty great. That guy's a hack. That one to people. That guy's a hack. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, but still entertaining. Entertaining is, is important. So this case, uh, is very interesting and I can see how people, uh, reading the premise of the case might have all sorts of mixed feelings. So tell us what's going on with this case. It's Rahimi v. U.S. or U.S. v. Rahimi. Yeah. So th- this might've gotten overshadowed a bit at the end of last week because, uh, you know, the Supreme Court was issuing its actual decisions in a bunch of cases that got a lot of attention, uh, but they also agreed to take up a new Second Amendment case, uh, which, was, which is actually just doing that is fairly unusual, right? They've only, this is going to be their seventh uh, Second Amendment case ever, and um, it'll be the third one they've taken up in the last three years. One of them got uh, mooted, so essentially New York threw in the, the towel and changed their law before the case actually went to a decision. And then obviously we had New York state rifle and pistol association be Bruin last year. And now we have United States be Rahimi, um, which is going to test or sort of explain how to properly do the test that was handed down in Bruin. I think uh, that's the, the big relevance of this, but the details of it are that um, I mean, the, the plaintiff is probably, or the defendant really is a criminal defendant. He uh, is probably one of the least sympathetic people. Seems like a nice imagine. guy. I don't know what you mean after reading the list of charges. So. Yeah. So this this guy, Rahimi, was convicted of possessing firearms while under a domestic violence restraining order that was issued uh, due to uh, that his child's mother took out against him because of accusations of uh, family violence. And... Um, the reason he was caught with firearms in the first place is because he went on like a crazy crime spree, basically mm-hmm. shooting spree. Uh, from what we know from the court documents now to be clear, these, these ag- allegations don't really come into play with this particular case that we're talking about at the Supreme court. But just to give you an idea of this guy is he was accused of, going to a person's house that he had previously sold Percocet to shooting up the house. Um, He was accused of a road rage incident where he cut someone off and then they flashed their lights at him. So he shot at them Mm. from his car. He was accused of shooting in the air at a Whataburger. um, That I understand. But go ahead. (laughs) His friend's card was declined. So his reaction was to shoot into the air. Um, you know, so he he was accused of like five different shootings, or he's been accused of five different shootings, uh, and is facing charges over those. As my but, as my friend Mike Haynes would say, but other than that, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, right. So this guy is probably going to end up in jail anyway, and have his gun rights taken away for these various other crimes mm-hmm. that he's accused of committing. Uh, is my my guess on how this will end up, but. None of that is really matters to the case at hand, or at least it's not supposed to matter. Right. Certainly there are things that can creep into Supreme Court decisions that aren't wholly based on the law. Germane. 
facts of the case. Yeah, it's certainly that uh, maybe not supposed to happen, but it's surely, it surely can. Uh, although in the, at the same time, there are a lot of famous Supreme Court rulings where the the person whose name is attached to it, the defendant in the case is not a good person. Miranda. Yeah, Miranda's, uh, was, I was going to say, that's a great example. He was a real piece of work. Yeah. So, the, the, you know, it, it's not impossible that this uh, that this guy's background doesn't have a bearing on the case. It's not supposed to have a bearing anyway. But so, um, you know, it's a little bit different, though, if you're following gun rights litigation, because usually what we're used to talking about on this show, right, are cases that gun rights groups, you know, the NRA, the Second Amendment Foundation, Firearms Policy Coalition, GOA, will file a case, they'll bring a case or they'll join onto a case that they want to pursue and push up to the, the, the Supreme Court. And they're usually focused on like broad bans, like assault weapons bans or magazine limits or gun carry restrictions that apply to everyone. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that when Bruin was handed down, when they did this new test for how to determine whether a law is uh, compatible with the Second Amendment, that opened up the floodgates for criminal defendants, too. I mean, you know, this we're talking about um, people's constitutional rights. And so uh, it also puts the burden to prove that the law is constitutional on the government so that you can have, there have been a lot of cases really where public defenders, just like in Rahimi, Rahimi had a public defender, will assert that the law their, their, their clients have been convicted under is unconstitutional because mm-hmm. it doesn't comport with the second amendment. There isn't a historical tradition. That's what Bruin requires for this law, this modern prohibition on uh, people who've been subject to domestic violence restraining orders from owning guns whatsoever, uh, that there's no historical analog to that, that dates back to the founding. Right. Um, that's what the fifth circuit has found in this case. That's where this is coming out of. And so that's what the Supreme court is going to decide. Yeah. I wonder one could make the argument, I think reasonably just kind of like, People talk about the Second Amendment being outmoded because, you know, there there, there were no AR-15s at the founding or whatever. Um, one could make an argument, I think, that women didn't have anywhere near the at the founding. They didn't have anywhere near the rights they have now. There they weren't afford, they the, there were their God given rights, but they weren't respected. So, is there an angle there? Do you think yeah. uh, on behalf of the government where they could say, yeah, but. You could beat up your wife in 1778 and probably not go to jail for it if you convince people she deserved it or whatever. Yeah, no, that's certainly been something that's talked about a lot around this surrounding this case is this idea of historical tradition. Well, at the founding, there wasn't such a thing as domestic violence restraining orders. Domestic violence was not treated the same way that it is today. Regrettably, I think most people would agree. Yes. And um, and so uh, that could come into play. Actually, I think. One point on that, though, is the fifth. The Fifth Circuit did consider that as part of their analysis right? when they when they did this case. When they found that the restriction was unconstitutional, they you know it wasn't that there weren't domestic violence restraining orders at the founding era, or that domestic violence wasn't considered a serious crime like it is today. Back then, it was they tried to take a broader view um, when they were looking for analogies uh, for laws that were similar to this modern. Law. I mean, the, you know, the 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 Gun Control Act is from the 1960s, mm-hmm. so um, the, these protections are relatively new in federal law. But um, you know, they they tried to find other 
laws from the founding era that you that were targeted at trying to do the same thing, protect one per person from another person who's accused of being dangerous in the same way, which was by uh, eliminating their gun rights for at the very least the duration of the restraining order. And, you know, they found a couple things. There were surety laws, which uh, did apply to somebody who was accused of being dangerous, an individual accused of being a threat, a potential threat to others, although it was more of a societal threat that this person you know, that were subject to these surety laws were, were perceived as being, that's what the Fifth circuit determined. And the punishment was that they had to put up basically like a bond, a cash amount before they could go and carry a gun in public. So obviously a different punishment or a different, you know, uh, restriction there. Uh, they they also found uh, that the fact that a domestic violence restraining order is not a criminal conviction to be a particularly uh, big problem. You know, it's a civil procedure. You're not convicted. It doesn't have the same level of uh, civil rights protections that a, a criminal case would carry with it. And so that was another big hangup that the Fifth Circuit found. Um, so, you know, the, the analysis is in, that Bruin requires is more complicated than just did domestic violence restraining orders exist in 1776 or, or 1792 when the Second Amendment was ratified. It's, it's certainly uh, meant to be a, a bit broader than that. You're trying to look at the tradition of how we regulated firearms and uh, what, try to match that with the modern regulation. And if you can't find anything that's close enough, then the modern regulation is unconstitutional. That's how it's supposed to work, at least. Right. And I think there's there's a lot of moving parts here, as I said at the beginning. I think not the least of which is, if this guy did half the stuff he's accused of, yeah, I I don't think any reasonable person wants him in possession of a firearm for one second. Um, so what do you do with someone like this? If, you know, it, it's one thing to, you know, we, we all believe in our Second Amendment rights, but, you know, if you're, if you're the parents of the young lady who's about to be murdered by this guy you don't care very much about any of that you're right. far more concerned with your daughter's safety or your friend's safety or whatever i just don't know uh, it's a it's a really tough question because what do you like we talked about red flag laws same thing you know if you have someone in your life who you think is about to come over and kill you at any moment and i've been in positions not unlike that um where there was somebody in my life who was very dangerous and i was scared of that person uh what do we do? What, you know, where do we draw the line? I think the court, I'm glad I'm not a Supreme court justice who has to wade into this stuff because it is, it is not, uh, not as simple as it, as it seems you're going to say. Yeah. There, so the, this was also something that the fifth circuit addressed at least a little bit. Um, one of the concurrences from uh, judge Ho, who was in the majority in this case, you know, he talked about how you can still, um, restrict the rights of these uh, people who've been accused of being a violent threat. You can do things like pretrial um, uh, detention sure. if they're if they're you know that serious of a threat to someone else's safety. There were another ways that he uh, laid out for how you could still address this uh, issue that you're describing without using um, you know this prohibition on gun ownership for people under these orders. Uh, whether that's convincing argument for the Supreme court, I think is a totally different question. Um, you know, I, I don't know that 
this is a this is a situation where unlike Bruin, where it was pretty obvious to anyone looking at the court that they were probably going to strike down New York's gun carry law uh, from the outset. It was, you know, the details of how far they're going to go, how they're going to justify it, are they going to set a new test? That stuff was unclear, but the outcome was pretty obvious, I think, to most people going in, just based on who's on the Supreme Court. Yeah. This case, uh, you know, I don't think that's necessarily true. Yeah, agree. Uh, he, I, I, I Just real quick, I wanted to say, I know people are screaming into their iPads and their, their Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultras right now being like, well, just like anything else, um, you know, anybody could make a capricious claim of a threat of domestic violence that isn't true and get your guns taken away. Right. And yeah, I get that too. It's just like if there's a mass shooting, if some person goes off and kills a bunch of people, that literally has nothing to do with me and my fill-in-the-blank AR-15 or whatever else. Mm-hmm. That person did what they did and they should be punished individually and I shouldn't have to pay, you know, and give up a right of mine because they went out and did something crazy. So I don't want people to think that I'm all in on, yes, red flag red flag laws are good or these DV laws are necessarily good because they can't be misused. Yeah, the, and that's one of the points that Judge Ho makes in his dis, uh, concurrence as well in the Fifth Circuit where, you know, there's uh, the, just the fact that this is a civil uh, proceeding for one of these restraining orders instead of the criminal one lowers the bar for what uh, is required to issue one of these orders. And, and so that puts at risk somebody's constitutional right. Then that becomes an issue, right? It's it's not, it's not even necessarily a second amendment issue. It's, you know, it's more of a due process issue at that point, but, but um, you know, it's certainly going to be very controversial. And that's another thing about, how how you how to predict the outcome of this case that makes it less clear than you know Bruin was, because Bruin by the time the Supreme Court had done something on on gun carry, you know the political winds had already changed on that right. There were only eight states left that had may issue laws where it was very subjective as to whether it, it basically it just gave government officials the final say on whether you get a permit or not regardless of your background or your training Mm. um you know those laws have been swept away by uh through political action through you know passing new laws Uh, in fact majority of states by then were permitless carry states and and so uh, it's the same thing with heller you know 2008 when the supreme court said that the second amendment protects your right to own a handgun well that was uh already extremely popular position in in the country right because there are only basically two of these bands left in dc and chicago hmm. and in this case you know it's not the same public opinion is probably not going to be on the side of letting people subject to domestic violence restraining orders own guns um you know i think a lot of people would be as you pointed out for decently good reasons uh uncomfortable with that even but you know, at the end of the day, that's what the Bill of Rights is there to to do. You know, in some sense, is like you got whether it's popular or not is not the question, right. right? Because if the Bill of Rights only protected our popular rights, it would be kind of useless. Um, not to say, you know, I'm not saying that this is that that the Fifth Circuit is right or that this domestic violence restraining order. Uh, ban is is wrong. I'm just saying that the court has gone with popular opinion on guns to this point, but 
at the same time, popular opinion is not really how they're supposed to determine how these things should come out. Yeah, if popular opinion were the the guide, uh, the uh, guide stick, the yardstick, the guidepost, um, mm. then you know it'd be perfectly okay to intern thousands of Japanese people in 1942 because that was the popular right. opinion at the time. So, with that said, Stephen, I have to ask, who was on the weekly reload podcast this week? This week we had a rabbi who's a member of the New York State Jewish Gun Club on to talk about the uh, synagogue ban gun ban that they have in New York. There was a, a ruling by a federal judge uh, who upheld that ban, actually somewhat oddly after New York itself had given up on hmm. its iteration of the total ban on anyone who isn't a cop or security, uh, licensed security officer carrying. So uh, pretty interesting case, uh, and one that I, I think is uh, going to be perhaps another Supreme Court case down the line as well. Interesting. Yeah, the Jews have a good reason, historically speaking, to want to protect themselves. Everyone's been trying to kill them since the last 3,000 years, so hopefully that, that works out. That is our time. Uh, folks, once again, go over to TheReload.com, TheReload.com. Dot com and consider getting a membership. As I said before, Stephen relies on your membership dues to fund his very important work. Uh, he is He's kind of in his own lane, as near as I can tell, as far as what he does. It's very niche, and we need uh, guys like him to remain, uh, well, that's uh, the word I'm looking for. Not fruitful. Employed? Sure. We'll go with, with employed. Yeah. Stephen, always a pleasure. Uh, I will see you next week, God willing. And as always, you have the last word. Absolutely.